You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. In Acts chapter 19, so we're going to read the entire story so you can recap in your mind what has led up to all of this and what has transpired thus far. We're going to begin at verse 23. And about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple and of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these things are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. There are certain verses in Scripture which I think are sort of good sleeping verses or sleeping pills. And by that, I don't mean genealogies that are boring and put you to sleep. I mean verses that when your head hits the pillow and your mind is racing and the events of today or the events of this last week or the concerns of life begin to keep you awake at night, there are certain verses that when meditated upon and reflected upon and believed on, cause you some peace and can help put you to sleep at night. One such verse is Psalm 4.8. When our children get old enough to 
stay awake at night worrying about if the house is going to catch on fire or if a robber is going to break in or if this is going to happen or if that's going to happen. And they want to make trips down the staircase to tell us what they're worrying about and why they can't sleep. We have them memorize Philippians 4.8, which talks about thinking on those things which are good. But we also have them memorize Psalm 4.8. In peace I will lie down and I will sleep, because Thou alone, O Lord, makes me to dwell in safety. Because You alone, O Lord, are in charge of my safety, I will sleep. Another good verse is Ephesians 1.11. tells us that He has predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will. Now, the predestined according to His purpose part of that certainly brings us a lot of peace and a lot of comfort. But how about the part that says that He works all things after the counsel of His own will? Do you believe that? Do you believe that He works all things after the counsel of His own will? Or do you just think that He is able to work all things after the counsel of His own will? Or do you really believe that He does work all things? Uh, Maybe you say, well, I believe God is omnipotent, and I believe He's almighty and He's powerful, and so I believe that He is able to take everything that happens and work it after His counsel of His own will, and that He is able to sovereignly direct all of those things, but you really don't believe in your heart that He actually does it. In that event, it's not the omnipotence of God that you question, it's just His wisdom. He's able to do it, but He doesn't. And do you believe that it's all things that He works after the counsel of His own will, or just some things? It's easy for us to believe that He works all the good things. The evangelistic events, the Christian radio programs and televisions, and the the missionaries and missionary activity and, and ministry in our church. God is able to work all of the good things, but what about the bad things? Does He work all things after the counsel of His own will? Or just the good things after the counsel of His own will? What about natural disasters? What about the terminal illness? What about the death of a loved one? What about the the sickness of a child? What about being fired from a job? Does God work all things after the counsel of His own will? Or just the good things that happen to you? See, friends, Scripture teaches that He does work all things, not that He just can work some things after the counsel of His own will. If I did not believe in the sovereignty of God, I would go nuts. I would go crazy because I would spend my nights worrying myself into an early grave over what might happen to me the next day or what might happen to my child the next day. And friends, I'm just like you. There are nights when I go to bed and I do not know what's going to happen tomorrow any more than I knew yesterday what was going to happen today. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Ask me tomorrow and I'll tell you. I don't know. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. I don't know that the next day holds good or ill for me. I don't know. But I do know that whatever it is, He's able to work it after the counsel of His own will. And He does. And He works all of those things after the counsel of His own will. And I believe and am absolutely confident that the end for which God has created all things is His own glory. And He is committed to glorifying Himself. And so that everything that He determines, everything that He wills, everything that He works, goes toward that end of bringing glory to Himself. And I am convinced that I am most satisfied when He is most glorified, and that He is most glorified when I am most satisfied in Him. And so He is able, and He does work not just some things, 
but all things after the counsel of his own will. Another verse that helps me get to sleep at night is Psalm 76, verse 10. We read it in our scripture reading. The wrath of man shall praise him. The vitriol, the hatred, the venting of man's animosity and his wrath toward God shall praise God. Now let me ask you, how does the wrath of man praise God? It can only be because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. You take the most vitriolic, God-hating sinner and you let them vent all of their wrath and their animosity and their hatred, and you will find that it will all contribute to the praise and the glory of God. Does God work all things? Even the attacks of Satan on his church? He most certainly does. Thomas Manton, a 16th century Puritan, said this. This is a profound statement. Listen to this. God many times gets up in the world on Satan's shoulders. And when matters are raveled and disordered, he can find out the right end of the thread and how to disentangle us again. And when we have spoiled a business, he can dispose of it for good and make an advantage of those things which seem to obscure the glory of his name. Another person at the same time said, The wrath of wicked men against the people of God is very tributary to his praise. The wrath of man shall praise you. How is that? It is because God takes all the vitriol and the hatred and the wrath and the animosity of man and He works it in such a way that it ends up to His glory. The wrath of man praises Him. Now if that's true, then God must be getting a lot of glory in Ephesus. Right? Chapter 19, because you have a lot of a lot of wrath that's being vented. You have upwards of 25,000 people that have filled this outdoor theater and all of them are shouting out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they've got a rally going there that, that you've never seen before. For two hours this is what they shout out and they are insanely in love and defending their idol which translates into a insane hatred and animosity for the one true God. So all of this wrath and vitriol is being vented against Paul, and really those who are there that they had seized because they couldn't find Paul, Aristarchus and Gaius, all of this wrath and vitriol is being vented against them. And we would expect if God makes the wrath of man to praise Him, that He would somehow bring glory to Himself out of this very ugly situation. And indeed He does. Look what happens. After they have been shouting out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the city clerk takes the scene. And he comes into the theater and he is able to quiet the crowd because they recognize who he is. And he is able to quiet the crowd and he reminds them of four things which really sort of stills all of this and ends up being a way that God from the most unlikely of individuals brings himself a tremendous amount of praise. Watch what happens in verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these things are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. The first thing that it reminds this crowd of is that Artemis is secure. Men of Ephesus, who among us does not know the historical facts of our our religion? Who's the town clerk? And why did they listen to him? Is he just some record keeper? You know who the town clerk was? The town clerk was the ancient equivalent of our modern-day mayor. He's the highest executive in the city. He's the one who's responsible to Caesar for all of the public order, all of the decorum. 
And when riots like this started to happen, and when there were civil uprisings like this one that's going on in Ephesus, guess who was the man held responsible by the emperor? It was the town clerk. He's the mayor. His job is to keep order. His job is to keep the peace. His job is to bring everybody down so that they don't catch the attention of Rome. And so the first thing he does is he says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there among us who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the keeper of the great temple of Artemis and of the image that fell down from heaven? Look, we are a privileged city. Of all the cities in Asia, really in all of the cities of the whole world, Artemis has chosen us to be the keeper of the great temple. And here was this magnificent temple, as big as a football stadium. Magnificent temple with all of the marble and the gold and the carvings. And there was a certain amount of civic pride. Who can deny that Artemis has chosen us and that we are a privileged people? And furthermore, he says, who can deny that we are the keeper of the image which fell down from heaven? I told you a couple of weeks ago what that was. It was a meteorite. There was a rock that had fallen from heaven outside of the city of Ephesus. And that rock had the image of a, of a multi-breasted woman whom they thought was the goddess of fertility and that this had fallen from the sky. And so they picked it up and they built a shrine and they began to worship it. And over the course of about a thousand years until Paul came to Ephesus, this worship of Artemis had gone on and been protected and all of it was centered in Ephesus. And they had built a temple there for this goddess and even in Paul's day, the rock that had fallen from heaven was there and they were the keepers of it. And everybody would come once a year to see this rock. Now I want you to notice what the city clerk is doing. He's doing something that you and I do when we talk about Christianity. He's arguing for his religion, for his faith, and he's basing it on what? A historical event. See what he's doing? Listen, that's a sound argument. To be able to point back to something in history and say, this happened... Therefore, we can have confidence that such and such and so and so is true. That's what Christians do. That's what Paul did. Paul said the prophets said that the Messiah would die and rise again. Look at one who suffered and died and rose again. Therefore, this one is the Messiah. And as Christians, we point back to a historical reality that we base and found our faith on. It's not the reality of a rock falling from heaven. It's the reality of an individual who claimed to be God the Son, the Son of God, God in human flesh, who then calmed the sea and raised the dead and healed the sick and predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and then rose again as proof that what he was claiming was true. And so we point back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we say this is the historical event, this is true, and our faith rests upon this historical event. And not just that one, but a whole bunch of historical events. That's what the mayor is doing. What's their historical event? A rock hit the ground. And the insanity of it is that they would then worship that rock. His argument is sound, but you and I would come to different conclusions. All that means is that there was a meteorite. It's not the god. It's not the goddess. It's not one of the gods. Uh, Our faith, look at the mayor, says these are undeniable facts. Well, certainly they're undeniable facts, but they don't warrant the conclusion that Artemis is God. How much more can we say, Jesus Christ died, he buried, he was buried, and he rose again, and these are undeniable facts. That's what our faith rests upon. So he says, who can deny that these things, sorry, who, these are undeniable facts. The fact that the guard, we are the guardians of the temple, we are the guardians of the image of Artemis, and therefore he says, so, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. Look. 
This little upstart religion of Christianity is not going to replace Artemis worship. Be calm. Act like people who have the confidence that your faith rests upon historical fact. That's what he's telling them. You shouldn't be acting like this. You should calm down. Don't do anything rash. Let Paul, Paul can say what he wants and do what he wants. We have history on our side that the rock came down. We have worshipped it. We are the keepers of the temple of Artemis. And this little upstart religion of this Saul of Tarsus is not going to overturn Artemis worship. And by the way, have you ever met an Artemis worshiper? You ever met one? But millions of people for 2,000 years have worshipped Jesus Christ. And the mayor says, we've got the rock. We've got the image that came down from heaven. Don't do anything rash. There's nothing to worry about. Artemis is secure. This little movement, that's the implications of it. This little movement called Christianity is going to peter out at one point or another. So he reminds the crowd that, that Artemis is secure. Friends, do you think he's trying to calm the crowd because he has some sort of pro-Christian bent? you think he's a believer? He's not a believer. He's not favorably disposed toward Christians or Christianity at all. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because he's responsible to keep the order in the city. So he's doing whatever he can. If that means getting Paul off the hook, if he gets Paul off the hook and the crowd quiets down, then he's off the hook as far as Rome is concerned. The second thing he reminds them of is that the Christians are innocent. Look at verse 36. Sorry, 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. This is a as clear and as simple of an exoneration of Christians in Ephesus as you can get. This is the highest executive in the city saying these men are innocent. They have neither robbed our temple nor have they blasphemed our goddess. When Paul came to town and the other Christians were in the city of Ephesus, they didn't go into the temple of Artemis and rob it. They didn't burn down the temple of Artemis or bomb it because it was a a pagan religion. They didn't do any of that. And they didn't blaspheme Artemis. The city clerk who is looking out for Artemis and the temple and Ephesus can honestly say of Christians, they have done nothing against any of these things. Now this points out something about the Apostle Paul's ministry that I think you and I can learn from, and I think it's something that we don't observe and we don't uh, really think of too often, and that's this. When Paul came to town, he did not intend to do financial harm to Demetrius. He did not set out as his goal to destroy the temple, to destroy idol worship. He did not have in his mind to do financial ruin to the idol industry. When Paul came to town, what did he come to do? To preach... Christ and Him crucified. Listen, Paul didn't attack the temple. Paul didn't attack Artemis. The Christians did not stand out in front of the temple and hold up their God hates Artemis worshippers sign. Or Artemis worshippers will burn in hell sign. They didn't block the doors to the temple to keep people out from worshipping. They did nothing to attack the temple and they did nothing to blaspheme Artemis. What did Paul do? What was going on in Ephesus for two years at the school of Tyrannus? What did he do in the synagogue when he came to town? He taught and preached the Word. Listen, friends, you want a more moral society? I do too. You want to stop abortion? I do too. You want to stop the homosexual agenda? I do too. But the answer is not in whom we elect. It's not in the courts. 
It's not in Congress. It's not with the person who is the president. The answer is not in legislation. It's not in political activity. It's not in blocking the doors to abortion clinics. It's in none of those things. You know what the answer is? You preach and you teach the word. It's not in whom we picket. It's not in whom we uh, petition or protest. It's not in any of that. There's only one thing that can change the heart, and that is the word of God when taught with power and with passion and with persuasiveness to people. You want to put a detriment in the abortion industry? Then teach little girls the Word of God and have them memorize it and teach it to them and and do what you can to persuade them to the truthfulness of it. And if you and I preach and teach the Word in word and deed, you know what's going to happen? The Demetriuses around us will rise up and say, hey, our prosperity depends on this business because everything will drop off. But it doesn't come from the top down. It comes from the Word of God making changes in people's hearts. Paul didn't set out to destroy Artemis worship in Ephesus. He preached the Word. But guess what happened to the Artemis worship in Ephesus? It declined. It declined so much that Demetrius was feeling the pinch, and he had to say, our prosperity depends on this business. We better do something with Paul. You want to make a more moral country? The answer rests right here. And when you and I are people of this book, and the churches are churches of the book, then all of that will happen as a natural outflow of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Not because we've done anything else. Not because we've picketed and we've protested. And all of those things are good for citizens to do. And I'm not criticizing any of those things. But our hope does not rest in those things. That's not how Paul made a dent in Artemis worship in Ephesus. It was the ministry of the Word. That's what the apostles did. Historically, listen to this. You know how slavery came to a screeching halt in the Roman Empire? Christians signed petitions and sent them to Caesar. No. Come on, that's a joke. That's not how it happened. You know how Rome became, went from being such an immoral empire to the point where morality was on the rise in the Roman Empire after a couple hundred years? You know how that happened? It wasn't because people petitioned. It wasn't because people got the, the right emperor in power. It rested in none of that. The Christians taught the word and loved the word, and all of a sudden there was a moral ref- reformation in Rome And slavery came to a screeching halt. But that happens when God's people are a people of the book. Not only does he remind them that Artemis is secure, but also that the Christians are innocent. They have done nothing to deserve this. Their behavior is impeccable. They've done nothing against Artemis. They've done nothing against our temple. They have done nothing against the city of Ephesus. The third thing he reminds them of is that Demetrius was in the wrong. Look at verse 37. Sorry, verse 38. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. The Christians are innocent and Demetrius is behind all of this. This is where the clerk announced this. If Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him, if they have a beef against any man, against Paul or against these men, go to the courts. Sue him if you want. Take him to court. The courts are open. The proconsuls are available. They'll be able to discern between one person's case and another person's case. If you have a personal legitimate beef, take it to the courtroom, but don't deal with it in assembly like this. Now, this had to have come as a shock to those who were gathered there. Remember, verse 32 says most of those who had gathered had no idea why they had come together. They're all shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And then the clerk stands up and he says, if Demetrius hasn't, Demetrius, what's, what does he have to do with all of this? Demetrius, we're here shouting. All of a sudden, everybody would realize, hey, we've been played. We've been played. For two, for two hours, we have been here 
chanting this out, and this wasn't about Artemis at all. This is about Demetrius and his personal beef against one man, this Paul. Suddenly they realize why they're there. It's all Demetrius. Fourth thing that he shows them is that Ephesus was in danger. Look at verse 40. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. Well, that's an understatement. Somebody could almost call this a riot. (laughs) You think? 25,000 people gathered in the stadium shouting out for two hours? Does that sound like a peaceful afternoon at home around the television set to you? It doesn't. It's a riot. We could be accused of a riot in connection with today's events, and we have no reason to justify it. If Rome comes to us and says, hey, we heard there was a civil disturbance in Ephesus, we're not going to be able to give any legitimate reason for this type of a gathering. And listen, the clerk is worried for his own skin. He has to give an account to Rome. When 25,000 people fill a theater and shout for two hours, and there is a disturbance and the whole city is filled with confusion, Rome is going to hear about it. And Rome did not just discourage uprisings like this. They crushed uprisings like this. Ephesus would lose its its right to self-governance, and the clerk would lose his position. This could be called a riot, and he reminds them, we're in danger, and if Rome hears about this, we're not going to be able to give them a legitimate reason for why all of this is going on. And this event, so he dismisses the crowd, he reminds them of the four things, that Artemis is secure, that the Christians are innocent, that it's Demetrius who is in the wrong, and that by the the very fact that they are gathered together presents to the entire city danger from Rome. And that's enough to quiet the crowd. Verse 41 says, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Go home. You're dismissed. Enough's enough. Everybody had quieted down. I think finding out that this was all about Demetrius' issue was enough to quiet everybody, right? Kind of walking out of there, Demetrius has been humiliated. Now, why does Luke spend so much time on this incident? You ever wonder that? Three years in Ephesus, and what does he tell us about? He spends almost a whole chapter telling us about this one incident. Why does Luke do that? Why doesn't Luke tell us about some of the other things that went on in Ephesus? He spends half the chapter telling us about this one thing. And there's two reasons for it. First, Luke wants us to see just how much the Word of God had triumphed in Asia. It had triumphed to such a degree, to such an extent, that this was the uproar that was caused. The Word of God had triumphed so much that false worship had fallen off. Idol sales had fallen off. Temple visitations had fallen off. They were cutting back on staff at the temple of Artemis, and they were feeling the pinch from the Word of God in Asia. He wants us to see that. Second, he wants us to see how God turned the wrath of man to his praise. How did that happen? What's the outcome of all of this? This whole incident, what happened as a result of it? Well, Paul and his ministry and Gaius and Aristarchus and the other Christians were publicly acquitted and exonerated by the highest executive official in Ephesus. And as far as we know, Demetrius never pursued legal action with Paul. Why? He didn't have a case and everybody knew it. So because of what has happened, with all of this wrath and with all of this anger being vented against the people of God, God ends up using it to declare Paul innocent, to humiliate Demetrius, who was the cause of all of this, to demonstrate that Paul had friends amongst Roman officials like the Asiarchs, who, although being responsible for emperor worship in the empire, were friends with Paul, supporters of him, and actually moved to save his life. 
And on top of all of that, it worked out to the praise of His glorious grace as everybody was acquitted and the Christians were delivered because of what had happened. So Paul, verse chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. This incident is the bookmark at the end of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. This point forward, he moves on. Now, did Paul leave because of this uproar? Remember, he didn't leave because of this. He had already made plans to leave back earlier in the chapter. He made plans to go back to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia and after that to visit Rome. He was already planning on leaving. And when this whole incident shook down, Paul said, now is as good a time as any to leave. He took, encouraged the brethren, and then he left. And we're going to look at the next phase of Paul's ministry in Macedonia, but I want to take a couple minutes to, to point out something about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. There are two things that characterize his time, this three-year time period that he had in the city of Ephesus. The first is incredible fruitfulness. There is no period, there is no region, there is no time in all of the missionary activity of the Apostle Paul that he had as fruitful of a ministry as he did in the city of Ephesus. From Acts chapter 13, verse 1, when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work for which I've called them, all the way through until the end of the book of Acts when we leave Paul in prison in Rome, there is no period that stands out like this period. No time period and all of his work was as fruitful as this time period. Teaching in the school of Tyrannus, planting churches around Asia, the whole region was hearing the Word of God. People were coming to Christ. False worship was dropping off. What Luke portrays for us here is a time of incredible personal fruitfulness in ministry. But second, it was characterized by intense personal suffering. Now listen, Luke doesn't mention this in the book of Acts. And Paul only mentions these things briefly in passing in some of his epistles because the Apostle Paul was not somebody who bragged on his sufferings. You ever met somebody, they ask them, how you doing? And they say, oh man, I'm glad you asked. My back hurts, my arm hurts, my eye hurts, I'm bleeding out my ears. And they give you the whole litany of everything that's going wrong with them. Takes them 15 minutes to go through all of the woes that they experience. And you're thinking to yourself, now those pale in comparison to mine. If we had another 15 minutes, I'd share with you all my woes. Paul wasn't that type of a guy. Paul mentioned his sufferings and his afflictions mostly in passing. There are a couple times when he spends a little bit of time telling them about them, mostly in defense of his own apostleship. But for the most part in his epistles, he just kind of mentions things that happened to him. Now, where was 1 Corinthians written from? Do you remember? Ephesus. You should have that in the margin of your Bible. 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now what did he mean by that? Was he speaking metaphorically of people who were attacking him and him fending them off? Or was Paul at some point put in a place where he had to fend off wild beasts? Could be one, could be both of those. At any rate, Acts 15.32, or 1 Corinthians 15.32 tells us that the Apostle Paul at some point had to fight for his life against people or things that opposed him. 2 Corinthians was written after Paul left Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I have suffered many imprisonments. Now do something this afternoon. If you're not watching a game this afternoon, go back and read the book of Acts and see if you can find all of the times that Paul was in prison. When was he in prison? Well, we only know of one time, Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, with the earthquake and the Philippian jailer. You remember that? 
By the time Paul left Ephesus, he could say, I have suffered many imprisonments. Where else in all of the book of Acts, except in this three-year time period, can we fit in multiple imprisonments? Paul suffered imprisonments in Ephesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, speaking of Ephesus, Paul says, Brethren, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction which came to us in Asia. That's Ephesus. And of the fact that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. I want you to know how bad our suffering was in Ephesus. It was beyond our strength and we were despaired even of life, burdened so excessively. Paul says, I was brought to the point of death. Romans 16, written after Ephesus. Paul makes mention of Priscilla and Aquila and he says, Greet them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. So much about Paul we don't know, isn't there? Luke doesn't tell us what happened. What happened in those three years that burdened him so excessively that Paul says, I despaired of life and I had the sentence of death in myself. I could have died. I fought with wild beasts, he said. I despaired of life. I suffered imprisonments. Oh, and by the way, greet Priscilla and Aquila who risked their own necks to save my life. At some point in Ephesus, Paul suffered multiple, multiple afflictions. Luke doesn't tell us what they were. Paul makes mention of them. And friends, they were horrible enough that at some point Priscilla and Aquila had to step in and risking their own skin to save his life. It can honestly be said that by the time Paul left Ephesus, he had gone through the furnace of affliction and God had brought forth much fruit. Incredible fruitfulness in ministry and intense personal affliction. Those two things don't seem like they go together, do they? They don't seem like they belong together. Yet there is no time in Paul's ministry that he was more productive, and there is no time in Paul's ministry that he suffered more at the hands of men in personal affliction and suffering and danger. At some point he was near death. See, friends, it's, it's not the good times and the prosperity, and the peace, and the comfort, and the joy, it's not at those times that you and I are most productive for Christ. You know when we're most productive? It is when we are in the furnace of affliction that God causes the wrath of man to praise Him. Incredible personal affliction. And the wrath that was vented on the Apostle Paul in Ephesus ended up making him the most productive he had ever been in his stay in Ephesus. The wrath of man shall praise him. Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement that it offers us. We thank you for what we learn, even from the life and the ministry and the perseverance of the Apostle Paul. And, and Father, it's something that we don't thank you for enough, but we thank you that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of danger and trial and tribulation, we thank you that you are able to work good and to bring glory and praise and honor to Yourself in ways that we cannot expect and we cannot understand. And we ask that You would encourage us this morning with that reminder. And for those among us and for those among our family, for those who are part of this body who are in the midst of that furnace of affliction, we pray that You would lift them up and encourage them and make them as fruitful in ministry as they have ever been in order that the wrath of man and our suffering trials 
and the furnace may all serve to praise and glorify you. We thank you that you are a God who is able to turn all of those things to your glory and to your good. And we commit ourselves to you this morning in that vein and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.